0: Hello. Welcome to a new episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. This is your host, Dr. Jack Chong. Think of me as your uh, neighborly, friendly psychology professor. Yeah, I've been teaching for quite a while now. I am 53, going on 54 next week, so I'm really happy about that. Anytime I can get another year under my belt, I'm grateful just to be alive. Anyway, if you're new to this podcast channel, welcome. If you're studying in a psychology course, just scroll down to the beginning of the podcast channel. You'll see my uh, psychology lectures sorted by chapter and by subject area. So feel free to use it as your reference library to help you with your classes. For everyone else who's just casually enjoying the topic of psychology, a lot of my uh, podcasts are related to supporting students in their pursuit of a psychology career, but also about current events as well. And I think going forward, and I'm just tinkering here, so each week I may change the format a little bit, and I think what I'll do instead of separating these things in each podcast, if I have a central topic like today, I'll spend the first, maybe third, just talking about what's going on in current events and my thoughts on it, as well as answer listener questions. And I'm going to try to improve on my speech in the podcast because I noticed that when I am editing the written transcripts and I'm using an app called Otter, like the animal, to basically transcribe my live recording, I'm looking at it right now, I noticed that I use a lot of these ums, and, and actually, (laughs) and also write. Just, they're little fillers. And I'm going to try to be more comfortable with pausing and not feeling the need to always fill up empty space. Because I think sometimes pausing is not a bad thing. It allows the listener maybe to think about something. It's not dead air. It's not necessarily a negative thing. And if I pause too long, I don't know, was that too long? Then I can always edit that out as well. Okay, so what's going on this week? And for my international listeners, I know you're watching a lot of American news. There's always the pandemic. That's just something that's always there. Uh, My wife and I recently got our first COVID vaccine shot from Moderna, and we're very happy about that. Very little side effects, just a sore arm for a couple days. My wife's arm was more sore for longer, but that was really about it. Uh, Pretty mild, definitely worth it. And I was sad to read that a lot of people who are reluctant or who are basically going to reject the opportunity to take the vaccine shot happen to line up politically based on their political persuasion. So those who tend to vote Democrat or identify themselves as Democratic, a larger percentage of them are more willing to take the vaccine. But a majority, like 50 to 60%, depending on the state, I think in the state of Texas it was 60% of those who identify themselves as conservative or Republican answered the poll question that they're reluctant, hesitant, or won't take the vaccine. I wish the data collectors would... Separate that that out a little bit more cleanly, because you can't just clump together reluctant, hesitant, and won't in the same question. So I'm not sure if they're just adding together the various percentages, and those are three different answers. But you see what I mean? Because someone is hesitant doesn't mean they won't take it. But someone who answers, I definitely won't take it, is... I would like to know exactly what that number is. Maybe it's thirty okay. percent. So I think, um, frankly, for the past week, I was emotionally very down. So that's one thing I don't mind sharing. Just uh, watching and reading stories and video clips of Asians and Asian Americans being attacked, yelled at, cursed at, um, physically harmed it's uh, very disheartening, and it makes me very, very angry, and that's not a place that I like to be emotionally because it feels a bit helpless. I can attend a rally. I can speak up on social media. I can record a podcast about it like I did last time, but uh, it's something that A lot of people who are in a minority status in America have to think about there is this constant anxiety or fear or sense of risk just by living your life, going to get groceries. And with the mass shooting, that is another element, but it also plays into this. It's like a terrorist attack, right? The goal of terrorism is to cause fear. It may not actually kill large numbers of people. Your odds of being killed by, let's say, a mass shooter is statistically very low, but the fear generated by these events are very high. And it's possible to experience vicarious trauma. You don't have to be directly in that space. And during the 9-11 event in the United States, many people suffered post-traumatic stress who were not on the ground in New York or at the Pentagon or in other places where um, these events occurred. So I tell my wife, who's following, you know, I told you that she's Burmese, she's from Myanmar, and she's following the coup and connecting with our acquaintances and friends over there almost on a daily basis. And I'm telling her, try not to watch a lot of those videos Of shootings and atrocities you're not obligated to do that to feel like you're being a caring person over what's happening over there you kind of know what's happening you don't have to actually watch the video where someone is beaten or someone is shot Um, it can really cause her to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress and uh, so this this is just weighing me down and and today luckily you know the past couple of days i caught up on my grading with my classes so i feel as if uh and the weather's improved a bit there's actually sunshine and for whatever reason i just feel better today I feel a bit more hopeful I feel like i want to channel that anger into just being more productive so that's where I am now. Hopefully, I can keep that going in the right direction. But uh, there are times where I feel like, what's the point? You know, not not, okay, I don't want to make it sound like I'm that desperate. What I mean by what's the point is that I give up on hope that things will turn around. I kept thinking about what life was like when I was a teenager in the 1980s graduating high school around 85, graduating college around 89, what life was like in the United States for me compared to how it is now, uh, 40 years later. And frankly, I, I don't see much of a difference. You would like to know or see progress in society amongst various things, but it seems like in many dimensions, things have gotten worse. Yes, there's opportunities financially to make money in America. You know, if you have creative ideas, there are business opportunities. Sure, of course. We're a first world country. There are a lot of economic opportunities here. That's why people come here from other places that are experiencing conflict or poverty, extreme poverty, right? But but in terms of just... In other aspects, it could be a lot better. So I'm not going to go into a deep dive about gun culture in America, but having lived abroad in other places for an extended period of time, there's just a different sense of security when you're... This is just my take. Of course, those who own guns will feel differently. But I, I feel a lot safer in many countries other than the U.S., Here at any random point, I don't know if someone's going to drive by and yell a racial epithet at me, which has happened before, or will someone say something when I'm in line at the grocery store? In my last podcast, talking about the hate against Asian Americans, I talked about how I try to kill people with kindness, and it's sad that I have to do that, that I have to make the extra attempt just to humanize myself that hey i'm like you that i'm in texas i use y'all a lot perhaps subconsciously to relate to other people that hey i'm a local like you listen to the way i talk hey i'm friendly i'm not a threat or to be extra assertive so i don't come across as being meek and a likely victim that someone can bully so even if nothing really happens nothing bad happens to me none of those things ever are directed towards me in the coming months still it's something that weighs on you knowing that that threat is there and can happen at any random moment it's kind of like waiting for lightning to strike right? the likelihood is very low but when it does hit it's very severe and startling all right, let's move on to some listener questions, and I appreciate these, by the way. So the first one is a was a conversation I'm having with someone in Australia, and she wanted to know if I can say something about intergenerational trauma. And I really should have clarified and asked what she meant by that. Uh, whether or not trauma is genetic is that the question? It's quite possible, I think, someone uh, we know that when a mother is pregnant, a woman is pregnant, that during the time of pregnancy, if she experiences a high level of stress, then the increased cortisol levels could be passed down to the fetus and that the newborns may have a higher sensitivity to stress. That's something I read a long long time ago, so I need to get more updated on that. So I don't have too much to say about intergenerational trauma, but I think what could be passed down if not if we're not talking about the biological aspect of it is the behavioral aspect of it. So if the parent responds to stress in a certain way, then of course a young child may also learn those kinds of coping mechanisms so from the outside this child becoming a teenager and a young adult responds to stress similarly as the parent who's experienced trauma is it that the trauma was passed down or is it a process of upbringing and absorbing these coping skills from their environment and their parents Another question she had was burnout in the mental health field. And yes, of course, like any occupation, anyone can experience a lot of stress and have what we call burnout. And so if someone's a clinician working with patients in a hospital setting or talk therapy, it's really important for that clinician to have what's called what we call peer supervision. So you have a chance to talk to a colleague, even though you're fully licensed, for example. You don't need someone to supervise you directly, like as if you're a graduate student in training. Having a peer supervisor means not so much about talking about your case with another psychologist, but to talk to another psychologist or mental health professional for your own mental health, so that maybe they can spot things and you can talk about the path you're taking with certain patients and whether or not it's bringing up certain issues for you or you feel like you're taking on too big of a caseload, then having an objective listener who's also someone in your profession can really help to give you some guidance. Like, you know, maybe you should cut down on the number of sessions per week. You know, how's your diet? How's your sleep? Those kinds of things. So mental health professionals can look after after each other. Uh, If you're an independent practice and you're kind of on your own, then I think it's really important to find a peer to have this sort sort of uh, peer supervision. So I think that's really important. So that's a good question. Now, Trenton, a new friend I made on Twitter, his uh, username is freaking Trenton. (laughs) Anyway, he asked me this question because he's a psychology student. I believe an undergrad psych major. And he's going through a spring break right now. So his question was, how do you maintain focus and not forget material during spring break? And that's a good question. Um, Although I would also look at it from a different perspective that students have so much going on during the course of the semester or quarter that it's okay to just veg out and give your mind a break i think there is this natural fear that like over the summer break you know especially in courses like mathematics where the concepts build on one another that uh when the new fall begins you forget everything oh i don't i don't know how to do algebra anymore you know, that's a legitimate kind of concern. So I think with a long break like that, yeah, it's good to keep your mind fresh and have some refreshers or, or like in psychology, maybe read some books that are in the field of psychology but not necessarily a textbook to keep up. It depends on your interests. But uh, I have another comment to make about spring break. And he mentioned that out of all his instructors, only the psychology instructor actually has assignments due during his spring break, and that—that that really upset me. I have to say, frankly, as an instructor, you know, basically holidays are holidays. You you really should not be giving assignments during spring break unless. The college states explicitly that spring break days are makeup days from the winter storm where we missed. So unless there's something specific like that, I believe it's really unethical for an instructor or for a college to have assignments due or even have an exam on the Monday back. My daughter has a situation like that where there's a quiz or an assignment due or on the Monday right after spring break? Why not assign that on a Thursday before spring break? I've always done that over the years because then you're expecting a student to do work over the holidays. So what's the point of having the holiday if you're still expecting students to submit assignments? Just because, and I believe it may be from an instructor who is normally teaching face-to-face classes and suddenly migrated to an online class thinking that, well, I'm sure my students have the time, you know, they're on their computers anyway, whatever, that they can submit an assignment. That somehow the rules are different because you're teaching an online class. And I have to tell you, if you're an instructor, don't do that. Respect the holidays, Now, you could argue that spring break is just a commercial thing for businesses to make money or whatnot. I teach in the quarter system. So the spring break is not an issue because the spring break for us is in between our quarters, where one, the winter session ends before the spring quarter begins. So there's a week off there that we call the spring break. But for most of you in a semester system, you're your spring break is in the middle of your semester. So it, it really is a break. And anyway, that's my take on it. So just don't do it. Okay, spring break is a break. So I'm, I'm sorry, Trenton, that you have to do stuff over your spring break. I would not have done that. Oh, one thing that uh, Charlie mentioned is whether or not I have a favorite psychological theory. And one of my students asked me the same thing when I shared with them my podcast about Asian-American hate, was that he said that I came across as being Jungian, Carl Jung, right? And I thought that was interesting. I never really thought about it that way. Um, I think the way I view behavior is a bit eclectic. You may have heard that term referred to therapists who are eclectic, meaning that we don't just rely on one particular theoretical perspective. Like, we're not just Freudian We're not just Rogerian, not just Skinnerian. So, for me, though, a lot of times when I look at behavior, I do look at incentives. So, I'm looking at reinforcements. I am looking at at it through the lens of behaviorism or as a behaviorist. But I also look at things through the cognitive perspective. What are one's thinking patterns? How does one make judgments? of other people. I love social psychology, so I look at the person in the context. How is the situation affecting one's individual behavior and their choices and their thinking and their stereotyping or prejudice? I'm also a Freudian because I believe that our we do have past experiences that influences our present, past trauma. that we experience denial or minimize severe events and think of as no big deal. We rationalize. Those are all Freudian concepts. So it's hard to say whether or not I have a favorite. Um, I feel like I use all of these like tool belts of a handyman. (laughs) Anyway, okay, let's take a short break. And then after the break, um, we'll go ahead and cover the topic of the day. Hello friends, let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals and oftentimes life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, if you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person then this could be a great solution for you so this service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor so again accessibility you'll get timely and thoughtful responses plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So, visit betterhelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P.com slash and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash you can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Okay, welcome back. So the topic of today is going to be applying to graduate school in psychology. So I'm going to assume that You've already made that decision. You've thought about the reason behind getting a master's degree or a PhD, doctoral degree. And you know the difference between the two. If you'd like me to explain that more, I can add that in a different podcast. But today I'm going to just focus on the nuts and bolts of preparing yourself as a freshman or let's say a senior in high school or freshman, sophomore, as an undergraduate psych major, that you've already decided to, to pursue a career in psychology, whether it's research or whether it's clinical, and kind of what to expect and how to optimize your application, because statistically, the odds are difficult to get into a graduate school program. Some For some PhD programs, it's harder to get into them than medical school statistically, because of the number of applicants versus the number of students accepted. And so I will refer back to my own experience a lot as a student applying, but also as a graduate student back in the day when I was part of the selection committee with the faculty. So I was part of the interview team. Um, I had a chance to evaluate the applications and rate them. There's a they try to make it as objective as possible rather than just going by a hunch that, okay, this student is pretty good for our our program. Okay, so if this is your if you haven't really thought this far ahead, what you should do, actually. And you're a better off. uh, You're you're better off now than when I was applying, because back in the late 80s and I graduated in 89 and I started graduate in that graduate school in 1990, back then you pretty much had to call the graduate schools that you're interested in and have them mail you an application packet where it has their school catalog and application and, and all the requirements that they're looking for, and then you mail it in. Now you can get all that information, of course, electronically from their websites, and you may be able to get application forms in the form of PDF files, to complete or they fill you fill them out online and submit them online but so the research aspect is easier for you guys now okay but here are some things and just to refresh myself since I haven't done this in such a long time I went to my alma mater University of Houston and looked at their application process for the counseling psychology department which is the department I graduated from and here are some Typical things. So some of these are going to be universal. But, and of course, for my international listeners, I'm talking about the United States. So the process will definitely be different if you're in a different country, if you're applying to somewhere in Norway or Singapore. But in the United States, each school and each department may have differences in their requirements. So I'm trying to give you the big picture here and a strategy Rather than to say, okay, rather than to be too finely detailed in my advice about applying for graduate school, okay? So this is gonna apply, speaking of applying, to whether or not you're pursuing a master's degree or a PhD. And remember, of course, with a master's program, the assumption is that you've completed a bachelor's degree. For a doctoral program, this is a little bit different. It depends. You can apply once you've earned your master's. Or with some programs, you enter in with a bachelor's degree, and the assumption is that you work on your master's degree. It's lumped together. It's a combined master's-PhD program. Okay, So let's say you're uh, 21. You graduated with a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree in psychology, or or could be any major, really. And then you want to pursue a doctorate degree. And you may, once you're in, you may have classmates who are older than you who have master's degrees, but it will take them a lot fewer years to complete their PhD than you because you're starting from scratch, so to speak. So here are some typical requirements that you're going to need for your application. Of course, your grade point average, your GPA on a zero to four scale, also your GPA within your major. So assuming that you're a major in psychology. Then hopefully your GPA in your field in psychology is higher than the other. Now, let me just make a point here that the GPA isn't everything. You don't need a 4.0. When I was on a selection committee, we've rejected students, first of all, out of all the, say, over 100 applicants, we would choose 30 for the Ph.D. program to interview and then accept maybe 10 to 12. For the master's program, is larger. You have more students. Um, so it, it is about the complete application. It's not just one part of it. GPA, of course, is one part of it. But what I'm trying to tell you is that we've rejected students who had a 4.0 GPA. It's not Everything. But you do want to maintain a relatively high major GPA because that's an expression of your passion, of your interest. So your grade should be better there, unless, of course, you're 4.0 and everything. But, for example, my overall GPA was only a 3.2. I say only, okay? I'm not trying to put down people who had less than that. But we've also accepted students, again, reversing roles here, who had a 3.0 GPA. But many colleges will list a minimum, so a minimum bar uh, so you don't want your GPA to be alarmingly low where you're automatically disqualified from consideration of the rest of your application. So you do want to maintain as high a GPA as possible. But again, it's not everything. Next is the GRE. That's a graduate record exam. The GRE general test is very similar to the SATs. And the idea is that there's an analytical section and all that, Um It's just a standardized test. But because of COVID, I've seen many large universities actually abandon that as part of the requirement. So you want to do that, check that out ahead of time. For psychology majors, you also have a GRE subject test. Now, to prepare for that is basically to, and you can get manuals on and study guides, but you'll see that it's pretty much your introductory to psych course material. It's very similar. A lot of broad concepts about research the fundamentals about cognitive science uh, social psychology and so forth Um, of course you know disorders and these are subjects that are normally covered in a intro to psychology class in fact one of my listeners who i've uh, messaged quite a bit and who's the only one to actually donate three dollars for a coffee thank you he said that, you know, he was taking the MCAT exam for medical school and they have a behavioral science component and he was using my psychology lectures to help him understand concepts for that section. All right. So you have the application form and again the GRE, you know, same philosophy as the GPA. You want it to be in the ballpark, you want to get it as high as possible, but it's only one subset of your application, it's not everything. It just means you're good at test-taking, okay? You have basic academic skills. They just don't want to see alarmingly low GRE scores. It just means that you may have trouble with reading comprehension and understanding the material going in, okay? So both your GPA and GRE are important, but it's not everything. Application forms, there are application fees, so kind of expect that, maybe $50, $80. It depends on the school. Letters of recommendation, this is pretty important, okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about how to get those. Then you have your personal statement or an essay where you talk about yourself. And again, depending on the application, they may have very specific questions. It may be more subjective, like answer one to five on these variety of questions. Or maybe just write about yourself, like like a complete essay starting from scratch. And I have some very specific advice about that going forward. So at the University of Houston, what they did, and I assume that all universities do this, is that they have a chart, a scoring system, where each of those above things that I've mentioned can be ranked on, like, say, a 0 to 10 scale. So let's say that your GPA, depending on the score, would earn a 0 to 10 score, right? So that's objective. Let's say from a 3.75 to a 4.0 is scored a 10, 3.5 3.5 to 3.74, score to 9, and so forth, okay? Same thing with the GRE, okay? With the, depending on the range, you get a score of, say, a rating from 1 to 10. Your letters of recommendation will, depending on the strength, that's a little bit more subjective, but if they're very strong, it's going to get a higher score, and as well as your personal essay, okay? And they're weighted. And like I said before, the next step is, once you've made it through the first cut, the second cut, Is usually an in-person interview and then maybe a third of those interviewed would be admitted so again at the University of Houston when I was applying it was 30 got interviewed and then um, 10 to 12 were admitted now as a student applying to schools one common question would be well how many schools should I apply to Well, okay, Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. Let me me just say that um, this is what you need. We're taking a deep dive here on how to prepare. What you need to do is work backwards. Whether or not you want a master's or PhD, clinical or research, social psych, health psychology, industrial organizational psychology, whether you want a PhD or a PsyD degree, Once you kind of have a rough idea, what you want to do is to interview people, graduate students and professionals who are in those fields. Not necessarily to find a mentor, but just to see if they're open to talking to you about their career, whether they're happy in their career, whether they find it challenging, and what are kinds of things they would recommend that you should do as an undergraduate student to improve your chances of getting in. They can give you a sort of a lay of the field that they're in. Okay, so you can do that kind of research. Um, and trust me, clinicians and psychologists and professors, they enjoy getting that. If they, if they don't respond positively to requests like that, then find someone else. Because I believe all professionals should be really open to someone who is interested in their career field. Just hope you don't find someone who's very disgruntled and unhappy then it's a real downer. Um, okay, so as an undergraduate, you should join the American Psychological Association, become a member. Then you can learn about the different divisions, which are the different uh, specific fields, and you can join them as well. It's worth the investment to be a member and to go to conventions. The APA convention is once a year, usually in the fall, before the fall quarter or semester begins, and it's usually in a very cool city. Of course, in the year 2020, it was virtual, but hopefully for 2021, it will be, I have to look at the uh, website. I forgot where it was going to be, but a lot of times it's in D.C., um, Chicago, San Francisco. One time it was in Hawaii. So in the past, when I was a full-time instructor with a real office and all that, in in-person classes where I bore my students with, no, I'm just kidding. I would just tell a lot of stories, and I really enjoyed that, we would make, a trip out of that every year we would take our daughter to san francisco we went to a san francisco and we went to one in honolulu that was awesome and you would see that the convention is so huge that you would see psychologists all over the place in that particular town because we have the free uh bag that comes with the convention so we go to the beach and there they are psychologists (laughs) With with their bags We'll go hiking up, more psychologists. So they would just pretty much take over the town they're in. Okay, so you want to join APA. Join Psy Chi, if you can. It's the Psychology Honor Society. Psy, P-S-I, Chi as in C-H-I, the Greek words, okay? So you want to be part of that. You want to be, um, if there's a separate honors program for psych majors at your college, you want to be a part of that. Okay, these are just the sort of the normal things that you want to do. Hopefully, you don't see it as just padding your resume, but actually be engaged in what these organizations can do. If you're passionate about psychology, you would want to be a part, to be around others who are just as passionate as you are. Okay. All right. And as an undergrad, start thinking about what specific field of psychology you, don't, you want to enter into. So hopefully by your junior year, you kind of know that, oh, I want to be a clinician. I want to be a researcher. I want to become a professor. You know, these kinds of, uh, you don't want to wait too late. And during the application process, just haphazardly choose a specialty because that's a huge commitment. So by the time you graduate and you're not sure, just get a job and work for a bit. Put it off for a year and then volunteer in a hospital or in a clinic or as a research assistant, then once you know, then apply. You don't want to just apply, and that was my mistake. I love social psych so much that, you know, I applied for a social psych, but then I changed my mind midway through this doctoral program, which most people do not do. So I extended my graduate school life way too long, when I switched from social to counseling, I don't regret it, but I ended up being an educator. So if, if I had worked backwards and did a little bit more groundwork and research up front, I could have saved myself many, many years and dollars of my schooling to get to this point where I am now. Of course, you know, it is what it is, and I don't regret it. Uh, a lot of my clinical training years, I really value, and it made me a better instructor, and a better psychology educator. But perhaps I could have gone to master's in counseling and then become a teaching instructor. Anyway, so uh, for those of you who like, uh, but early on in your undergrad years, don't worry too much about cornering yourself in one area. Try to take a broad spectrum of psych classes. And then narrow down your interests a little bit more as an undergraduate student try to become a research assistant even if you have no interest in research or becoming a researcher the fact is is that most masters and doctoral programs have a research requirement a thesis or a dissertation so you want to be grounded in those skills you want that to appear on your application in your resume so whether it's a paid gig or volunteering and sometimes you can get course credit so just do a little research in your psychology department look under the faculty biographies and they will usually list and usually in the department there's a place either on the web back in the day it was a table where they were recruiting students for research okay so every professor at a four-year institution has to have a research program right based on their specialty of interest so whether it's Lifespan psychology, social psychology, dealing with a particular age group, dealing with a particular disorder. You seek them out. Knock on their doors. Call them and see if they have any research positions open. Okay? So even if you're not going to become a professional researcher, it's good to understand how research works so that you're better at understanding research when you're reading about it, which will you'll do a lot of in graduate school. All right, let me take a breath here, grab some tea. All right, as an undergraduate student, when you're taking classes, your classes may be taught by a professor, and they may have three to four teaching assistants, or your classes may be taught by a teaching fellow who is a grad student. Get to know these graduate students. Okay, you don't have to be drinking buddies, right? But just get to know them, ask them questions, be curious about what it's like to be a graduate student. What did they do as an undergrad to prepare for grad school? You know, what was it like to do the interview? So all the questions that you're that I'm trying to give you in terms of advice, you can get from those grad students cuz they're, they're there. They made it. Okay, they're in the door. So that's where you want to be. So talk to them. Be involved at your campus right? As much as possible. Again, with student organizations, it doesn't all have to be related to psychology. It could be related to the environment. It could be related to community activities. You know, whatever it is the college has to offer, have a diverse array of experiences. Play intramural sports. Explore different hobbies. Travel when you have time off. So join these student clubs. Don't overdo it where you don't have time to study. But Just have a wide range of experiences. Again, not just for resume padding. Don't be too strategic about it. Okay? But just explore the kinds of things that make you happy uh, and are fulfilling. Some classes are labeled service learning. See if your college has classes like that. In service learning, and sometimes it'll show up in a transcript under SL. So let's say there's an experimental psychology class, and they're all normal classes in the classroom and all that, then some of them have a label SL, service learning. Then that means that that class will have a service learning project. I'm going to do a separate podcast about that. But in brief, for example, when I was an instructor on campus, I would take students to do Habitat for Humanity projects, take students across the border to uh, with another organization to aid in their medical clinics with very poor and desolate people along the Mexican border on the on the Mexico side. Uh, we there was a horrible uh, set of hurricanes that went through Louisiana, New Orleans. Uh, you may remember Katrina, so post Katrina for two years in a row, I brought students out in a caravan out there to help with other, nonprofit organizations as volunteers for about a weekend or so and then we drove back and then what happens is that with service learning is that depending on the class it could be a history class government class psychology sociology it doesn't really matter but if they have a service learning component what they're going to do is to have you apply your academic concepts to the experience of service okay And I'm telling you, for a lot of my students, it is a very enlightening process, okay? They really enjoyed it. So again, look for service learning projects at your college. Unfortunately, at the time, my college wasn't really into service learning. So I kind of did this on my own and developed a reputation where other instructors just email me out of the blue asking me, well, I teach mathematics, can I... Can I do a community project out of it? No, I teach history? And so we would start to have meetings all outside of the college in the sense that the college would not sponsor these activities. But ironically, by the time I left on a separate campus of our within the same college system, they kind of took this mantle and created a committee and had support from the college. So I feel kind of happy that I spurred that change. I feel very proud about that. Okay, so now let's talk about the, so those are all the kind of things you can do as an undergraduate student to help you prepare and make you a very uh, well-rounded person, not just a student, but an individual with high integrity and character and passion, okay, and who's open to learning. So let's talk about some of the details in the application that I mentioned earlier. All right, make sure you know the deadlines, of course. Um, And some master's programs have multiple deadlines throughout the year. They may take people not just once a year, but maybe two to three times a year. So look for that, depending on the school. How many schools to apply to? There's no magic number, but be reasonable. Don't apply to 20. Um, You'll kill yourself doing that. Um, But just, I think everyone has their dream schools and then backup schools, but here's the thing. Treat every application as one that you would realistically attend. Don't just apply to a school thinking in the back of your mind that I really don't want to go to this university, okay? So that should filter out some of your choices. Don't think in terms of dream school and backup schools. I know it's kind of hard to do that because what happens is that your backup school Application will look like a backup school application. And that will offend the university who's reviewing that application because they can tell in your personal essay, they can tell by your letters of recommendation that, you know, for example, from the University of Houston perspective, we were reading essays and they did not mention the university once. They did not mention the city of Houston, why they want to come here. You have to talk about those things. They didn't mention any of the faculty, right? In other words, it was quite clear the student had no intention of really wanting to come to University of Houston despite their 4.0 GPA and outstanding GRE scores. You can just see it's very apparent that it was a backup application. So do not have any backup applications. Write every personal statement or essay specifically for that school. Don't be making a template and just filling in the school name, okay? you want to do your research. If you want to apply to University of Illinois and University of Washington and University of New York, right, and University of Texas, make sure that you do some research. Mention faculty members you would love to do research with, to work with. Mention the city. You know, when I talked about Houston, I talked about how you know, it's the fourth largest city in the US, is very metropolitan and diverse, it has the largest medical center, I believe that has great resources for for my career interests. You know, so someone reading that, they'll think, wow, this person really knows about this area and really wants to come here. Okay, remember your scores are not everything, but they're just part of the ticket to get in, to be considered. Okay, so again, try not to have rock bottom scores. Now, it's good that some universities are dropping the standardized scores as requirements. So, again, do the research about that. Now, let me talk about, I talked a little bit about the essay, right? So, you know the strategy behind that. But So, individualize every personal statement or essay that you write for that school and mention names, name drop, do research, contact them, have conversations with these professors ahead of time. So, that when they're the ones reviewing the application, doing anything that makes them feel good, they, oh, yeah, I remember Jack. He actually called me a few times and asked me about my research that I'm doing at the university. So, that's something you want to do. You don't want to be a stranger. And also, find out if the university that you're at now, whether they have a tendency to accept or reject their own undergrads, right? Each graduate school department and every university has their own philosophy. So for some, they may think that they want students from all over the world and different places. They, don't, they really do not want their own homegrown students, okay? Whereas others are more open to it. It's like, oh, this is a student I'm familiar with. They were my research assistant as an undergrad. They're applying for the same department in grad school. This is a person I know and I trust, and I will admit them. So each school will have a different philosophy about that. All right, now the interview part. Let's say you made it through the first cut. You got an interview. And I'm wondering if I should do a separate podcast just about the interview, but let me just talk to you briefly about it. Don't stress out too much about it. At the University of Houston, they even had a social before the formal interviews just to get to know everybody. You know, They went to a professor's house, big and fancy house, had drinks and you know just chit-chat, snacks, and they just want to know you as a person. Okay? They're not really going to test you, okay? It's not about what you know. Don't worry about that. The fact that you've advanced to the interview stage means that you're a good enough student, okay? They're not going to quiz you about your thoughts about Jung and Freud, okay? Don't worry about that. But the main thing is that they want to know whether or not you have a nice personality, can work with others as in a team setting. Are you open to learning new things? We've had applicants made it to the interview stage, and they were very clear that they're a true Freudian, that that is the best model to understand people and the best model of therapy. Well, each psychology department may have a different specialty area. They may specialize in a specific point of view, right? That's the kind of research you need to do, right? Is this, is this a good match for me in my own personal interest? Now, if the university doesn't really specify or they have professors who have a wide variety of interests, then that's good. But you need to express that you are open to learning new things, okay? And so it is about your character. It's about what you're passionate about. It's whether or not you're community-minded, right? How caring you are as a person. And whether or not you're just nice to hang out with, okay? So in conclusion... And I have to tell you a a really quick story. When I applied for my internship during my PhD program, and this is a a 12-month internship that everyone in clinical and counseling psychology has to do, and it's paid very poorly, but it's paid, and you can apply to almost everywhere. So I applied to, I was in Texas at the time, right, in Houston. I, I applied, I wanted to go West Coast. I wanted to meet people, go to the beach, right? So I applied to places in California, all up and down the coast, and Hawaii. And, uh... In any case, I, I I got accepted to the Los Angeles VA, uh, the downtown outpatient clinic, and they only accepted three out of over 100 applicants. I, I was so happy. I was number four on the list. So one of the top three that, that they called and said, hey, you got it. They said, oh, you're my second choice. I actually got accepted my first choice, so they passed. And then I was the one who got bumped up to that third position, so I felt very happy about that. Now, what I was getting at was that In terms of my interview performance, one of the psychologists, and we got to see their notes. They let us see the notes. I'm not sure if they (laughs) really wanted to do that, but we got to see their comments based on the interview day from the different psychologists from the hospital. And I remember one psychologist, his name is Steve. He said one word, not just one word, but one of the words he used to describe me was sober. And we had a good laugh about that. I like, what the heck does that mean that I'm sober? But I think I took that as a compliment. It just meant that maybe I was like a fresh, a breath of fresh air. I wasn't just, you know, overly rehearsed and stiff. You know, I was very relaxed. I was just myself. And they liked that. Okay, so let's wrap up here. Again, I can't say this enough. Have good grades, but don't be too obsessed about them. It's not just about padding your resume. You want to have a strong CV. You don't want to, nobody's perfect, okay? They just want to know if you have good character. Everyone applying is going to have good academic skills, okay? That's sort of a baseline given you're good at school. But but are you going to be a good fit for that program? Don't uh, treat backup schools as backup schools in your application. And if you're accepted by one, you know, if that's the only one, it happens to be a backup school, you need to decide. Do I want to wait a year and try to apply again to my dream school or am I willing to go to this university? And I have to tell you, unless you're going to an Ivy League school or Stanford or or Berkeley or, or Brown, you know, the name, the university name may not matter that much. It's what you make of it once you get your degree. You can become a well-known author. You can become a great counseling psychologist. You can be uh, a leading member of your community, right, as an advocate. There's so much you can do. You just want to get that degree. Don't place so much emphasis on fame and the reputation of a school. It's not everything. So be prepared Make yourself a good, strong candidate. Be prepared for the possibility of not being accepted to a school. And then, you know, and I can do another podcast about that, what to do when you're not accepted or you don't get your dream school, don't get your dream job coming out of your degree. Okay? All you can do is just do the best you can. Okay, I think that's enough for the day. So I want to wish you the best of luck. Feel free to reach out to me if you have questions. If you're in this process of applying for graduate school and need some guidance, I can be another additional mentor if you want. That's outside of your normal circle of professional mentors. Okay, everybody, have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. Hey there, thanks for listening to this podcast today. Can you do me a big favor um, just so that this podcast gets heard by more students of psychology and other people interested in the field? uh, Go to Apple Podcasts and put a little rating there if you like and uh, a brief uh, review, okay? And you can also contact me directly using the links in the description, whether it's Twitter or email, with any suggestions or feedback that you may have to make the show better. And uh, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I can add them. And if you want to support me by buying me a coffee, the methods are listed in the description as well. Again, thanks and have a great day.